Well, we've been going through, and yesterday I emphasized from Ezekiel 17 that the Scriptures have to do with today. Uh, They were written for those upon whom the ends of the world would come, as I quoted. And much of the reason that I'm going through this material, and will continue through some today and, and on, is that we might understand or review or grasp how important it is what we are involved in. We do not want to lose sight of the fact that God is working and God is doing work and God is going to do more work before Christ returns. And lest any not endure, lest any not see the importance, lest not any repent of Laodiceanism, and we somehow miss out on what God has called us to do and to be, we need to review and understand how much you and I are mentioned in the Scriptures. How much a part that God has given us to play. Because the calling of God is not to everyone. It is only to, a really, relatively speaking, a few. Matthew 16, I want to turn to for a moment and focus a little on that so that we realize what a blessing we have to understand truth today. Now, Christ had told us, in Scripture, fear not little flock. So that which he was going to do was not going to be great in number, but a little flock. And even though there were a few thousand who were converted during the times of the apostles, it was a very, very small percentage of the people who were walking the earth in that day. So it was a small flock by comparison. Now, it is not a contradiction to say many are called and few chosen, but even if you consider that maybe 150,000 at Worldwide's biggest uh, attendance, let's say, at the feast, that also included a lot of people who came along as visitors or were a third of them kids or whatever. So there were not that many converted people there by any means. So even though that was many compared to some of the things that had occurred in the past, it still was not many in comparison to the population of the earth. And then we saw that larger group scattered until God tells us there will only be about 10% left who have remained faithful that he is able to work with. So we were part of the larger number, most of us here. Will would be part of the smaller number that is usable to him. And will we manage to make it through until that time, or will we let this, that, or the other thing pull us away from what God has been doing and will be doing? Those are the things that are motivating and behind the information I'm covering today. Notice what Christ said to Peter here in Matthew 16. Uh, Peter had averred that Christ was 
the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 16. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, I've been quoting John 6:44, which says, No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. And here was Peter, his uh, very close disciple to be apostle and to be the physical head of the church hereafter, and he says, you didn't come up with this yourself, Simon. You didn't just watch me and hear me and say, oh, you're the son of the living God. He said, no, the Father revealed that to you, Simon. So he's putting him in a way in his place here. Don't get the big head here, Peter. Uh, this came from God. And then he confers on him something very important. And I say also to you, that you are Peter. The word in the Greek there is petros, which means a pebble or a small stone. That's what the word Peter in the Greek meant. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, was he going to build his church on Peter? A man? No. The Greek there is petra, or a very, very large rock. So he says... Peter, you're a pebble. I'm going to build my church on a rock. Now, he was the chief cornerstone, Christ was, Ephesians 2.20. So, chief cornerstone means he's the big rock, uh, not Peter. So, he's still putting him in his place while at the same time conferring leadership physically on the earth to him. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a pretty important thing to have. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? What is a key for? A key opens a door and allows you to pass through it in. So, what he was going to give him was the key or the keys that would open the doors of heaven to people that Peter would preach to. It wasn't that Peter was given the key and he could open the door and say, you come in, or lock the door and say, you stay out. He didn't become the judge. He didn't become the one who confers or takes away salvation. He was given the knowledge of the things that would open up the door to the kingdom of God, if followed. Acts 5.29, Peter said we should obey man, I mean obey God rather than man. So obedience to God was one of the keys that he had. So it wasn't his judgment who would come in and who would stay out. Okay, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Did he give Peter the ability to do whatever he wished, and whatever he loosed on earth, God would loose, whatever he bound, God would bind? Now, who would be in charge under those circumstances? 
Peter. What if he told Al or George or me, whatever you loose on earth, I'll loose in heaven. Can you imagine some of the things we might turn loose? Can you imagine some of the things we might bind? He wasn't giving Peter that authority. Now, the Pope thinks it was given to him because we had, uh, in, in Acts 8, the story of the guy who probably started the Catholic Church. He was some kind of a charismatic leader who had gotten people to follow him. And uh, it says even he accepted the truth there when Philip came preaching at Philip the Deacon. And many people believed what Philip was saying and were baptized, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit because the deacon was not authorized to lay hands on and, re and God would give the Holy Spirit. Not just everybody can baptize. Uh, so don't think you can't. There are people in the church who have decided it's okay for them to baptize and lay on hands and God will honor that. Well, he didn't back there in Acts 8. And when Peter and John got there... They laid hands on them, and then is when they received the Holy Spirit, having gone through the act of baptism before. They had authorized Philip to do that, but he didn't have the authority to lay hands on, and God beget that person with the Spirit. And when Simon uh, Magus saw that happen, he approached Peter and says, Here's money. Give me that power. And Peter, literally in the Greek, or transported to uh, English, said, go to hell with your money. Now that's what the leader of the Catholic Church was told. <laughs> and that's pretty much where he's going to go. But you know what? The Protestant churches today are the daughters of the Catholic Church and still have basically the same beliefs, Sunday worship and going to heaven and going to hell and all these things that the Catholics taught. So it isn't really Christianity, it's uh, watered-down Catholicism, basically, is what it amounts to. And that the commandments of God are done away and so on. Well, back here in Matthew 16 and verse 18, or 19 it is, the force of the Greek here is not carried forward in the way this is translated. The force of the Greek is, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth had better be what is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth had better be whatever is already loosed in heaven. He's not giving him authority to do anything he wants to. He's limiting him if you read the Greek properly. You better not bind or loose anything that hasn't already been done in heaven. In other words, you obey God rather than men. If he had given Peter authority to do anything he wanted to, then he wouldn't have said, you ought to obey God rather than men. He would have said, I'm a man in charge and God gave me full authority, so obey me. I'm a man and you've got to do what I say. That's what the Pope does. I'm the vicar of Christ. I'm here in place of him. Don't worship Christ, worship Mary. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, Peter was given 
limited authority here. Yes, he was put in charge, but he says, you better follow what is in this book, that which God has bound and loosed, and this is the book that shows you what he's bound and loosed. So you better, what did Christ say? Live by every word of God. All Scripture is profitable for reproof and rebuke and instruction and righteousness. So this is the authority right here. Peter wasn't. And God, God was just telling him, you better follow the authority. Now, Herbert Armstrong was given truth, and I have no doubt that God called him to do what he did. I'm going to take you to some scripture today, and we're going to underline in some ways what we did yesterday. Now, to grasp this, understand that many of the things written in the Old Testament and by the people that we, they were written by were written so that there would be a type of that individual later on who would do the same kind of work in the end time that they did originally as the person. In other words, uh, Malachi tells us that in the end he would send Moses and Elijah. No, he's not going to resurrect them, but he's going to send people to do a work similar to what Moses and Elijah did. He said that in the end he would send a John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was a type of Elijah from the past. He was a fulfillment of doing Elijah's work. And Christ said, I'm telling you, Elijah's already come in the form of John the Baptist, but there's another yet to come after that at the end. So you can take some of these people from the past and bring them forward. I think even Noah hadn't thought of it before we got into it, but he had a hundred-year work there that was designed to be a refuge and a way for some people to escape and continue to live. And it was a hundred-year work. Now, I'm telling you, here at the end, there's also a hundred-year work. Same length of time. Herbert Armstrong was about 70 years of it, leaving 30 to be finished up. We'll get to that later on. But those types from the Old Testament come through to the New Testament in the end time. That's why, and I preface where we're going with that, so that we have clearly in mind that in some of these Old Testament characters, we should be looking for some of the things that we were to see now. And I tell you, when we go through the information we're about to go through, especially those of you who have been around Worldwide Church of God for decades, will recognize a lot of this. Some of you who are newer or didn't or were born since he even died might not. But it still, it will educate you into what God has done in the past and how he brings that forward to be used at the end. Prophecy is fulfilled over and over and over again until the finest, final and biggest or most dramatic fulfillment. Let me give you a small example. Well, this is kind of a large example. Christ was Melchizedek, 
He was the king and the Lord of the Old Testament. And who did Abraham pattern his life after? Christ. Who was Adam supposed to pattern his life after? Christ. And you go through, and those who were the leaders that you'll hear about in Hebrews 11 patterned their life after God's law and God's way and after the Father and the Son. So all those people were types of Christ, right? So were all those people in the early New Testament church. Paul said, I present you as chaste virgins to Christ. And he says they were to follow in his footsteps, think his thoughts, and bring every thought into the captivity of his way of thinking. So, were they types of Christ? Every one of them was. So, we might say, well, so-and-so is a type of Moses or a type of John the Baptist or something, and people get all excited and say, well, oh, well, how could that be? They're not that important or whatever. Well, who's more important than Christ? Oh, the Father. And yet you've been called, every one of you, to be a type of Christ. When the world looks at you, they should see Christ. Right? What greater type could there be than that? You are a type of Christ the King. Now think about that in your conduct... And in your thoughts, we are to be a holy people, we read yesterday. Holy. Every day is a holy day for you. should make it holy. Make it the way God would think. There's a huge challenge for all of us right there, is to be a proper type of Christ. And we all fall short of it every day. But we keep working at it because that is the ultimate goal, is to be like Him and to be a type of person that the world would look at and say, that's the type of person Christ was. That makes you a type of Christ, right? We should all be little Jesuses running around down here. Not pumping ourselves up and telling us how important we are because we're a type of Christ, but humbling us and making us meek to understand that we have a high calling to fulfill and that it is not an easy calling to fulfill. And it's easy to get discouraged and give up. And we can't go there, because we've been called to a high calling. So now that you're all little Jesuses in Christ, we're going to talk about somebody else who I think uh, mirrored, or Herbert Armstrong mirrored him quite a lot. There's quite a bit to say. So if you'll be turning to Hezekiah 18, do you know where to find it? (laughs) Well, let's go to 2 Kings 18 and read about Hezekiah then. I remember the first time that was pulled. I think it was David John Hill. Turn to First Hezekiah 13 or something like that, he said. Boy, and people were frantically riffling through their Bibles trying to find Hezekiah. And uh, he was having a good time watching them. 
it's an old one now, but uh, it was reminiscent. I love David John Hill. Anyway, in 2 Kings 18, we pick up the story of Hezekiah. And a lot has been written about Herbert Armstrong, about how good a man he was. And an awful lot has been written about how bad a man he was. Now, what kind of a man was he? <laughs> because it depends on what you read, I guess. Uh, but we're going to find a lot of parallels between his life and that of Hezekiah. And there are three accounts of this in the Bible, which to me means that it must be pretty important for God to repeat it three times. And one of them is in a completely prophetic context. Uh, where we're headed here in Second Kings is more of a historical context, although it has prophetic elements in it that we'll see when we get to the prophecy part, obviously are prophetic. You know, Moses was a prophet. Scripture says that. You, you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I mean, you think, well, that ain't prophecy, that's history. There's a lot of prophecy there, an awful lot of prophecy in those five books. So God called uh, Moses a prophet. So we will see prophetic things here but not in a specific prophetic uh, context until later. But let's pick up the history first and see how it fits. Second Kings 18, It came to pass in the third year of Hosea of Elah, king of Israel, uh, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So Hezekiah was just of Judah, not of all Israel. Uh, Judah and Israel were split at that time, Jerusalem being the, the uh, headquarters of Judah and Samaria, the headquarters of the ten northern tribes. So he was 25 years old. He wasn't an old man when he started reigning. You know, you didn't, uh, you didn't come to a certain level of age or maturity to be a king. It just happened when your dad died, <laughs> whenever that was, if you were... 12 years old or 25 or 40, uh, you became king. That didn't always work out good, but that's the way it was. But here's where the important stuff begins. Verse 3, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Eternal, according to all that David his father did. Now, David was not his physical father, but he was certainly uh, of the lineage of David as a king of Judah. And references made that he was righteous even as David had been righteous. Well, that's a pretty good recommendation right there. If somebody was like David, who was a man after God's own heart, uh, that's a pretty good recommendation. Now, David had his mistakes, he had his problems, but overall he was a very, very righteous man and one who sought God very, very avidly and uh, <coughs> that becomes clear as you read the Psalms. Now, what did he do? He removed the high places, broke the images, cut down the groves, broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehash, Nehashtan. Now, God had made that 
serpent because of sin. And if they looked upon it or touched it or whatever it was, uh, they lived. Didn't die of the plague. Well, God made that as a physical thing. Didn't replace God. But in their minds, there's the snake that saved me. So they began to worship the snake. It's amazing why people will start worshiping whatever throughout history. Now, what did Herbert Armstrong do? When he began to learn the trade, he'd grown up as a Quaker, just a part of churchendom, uh, Protestant basically. So when he learned about the Sabbath, when he started learning about the truths of the Bible, the things that had been bound or loosed in heaven, not his own ideas or the Pope's ideas or Simon Magus's ideas or John Wesley's ideas or whoever, he began to learn the things of the Bible. So what did he begin to do? Break down the idols of Satan. Christmas, Easter, Halloween. He began to do away with those things which were not part of the worship of God, but which were part of Satanism. Saint Nicholas. (laughs) Satan the devil. So, there's a parallel. He trusted in the eternal God of Israel. Read the autobiography. I mentioned yesterday how they needed ten cents to get milk for the baby and didn't have it. And somebody brought it. And there were other things like that that happened early in his uh, Christian walk and early in his ministry where little miracles, but obviously miracles, occurred because God was obviously working with him, starting out small, starting out slow. Uh, He didn't let him get uh, vain and egocentric. Most of what he did didn't work too well. And he had to really struggle to make things happen the way they ought to happen. They didn't come easy, just like it doesn't come easy for us to be types of Christ. But he trusted in God. Hezekiah did. H.W.A. did. So that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Now, we're going to find later that Hezekiah had some attitudes and made some mistakes. But this is a summary here at the beginning of the story about Hezekiah. And that no matter what comes later, overall, he was a man who trusted in God more than those who had been before him and those that came after him. So that's a pretty good recommendation right there. (coughs) For he clave, he clung to the eternal and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Eternal commanded Moses. Oh, he kept the commandments. How many churches across this land in churchendom do you know that say, we have to keep the commandments? I never studied one of them or went to one of them that ever told me that. They all say, almost uniformly, the commandments are done away. All you need to do is accept the name of Jesus and you're saved. That's basically all there is to their religion. A few of them, uh, some of them only have four scriptures that they know. Some of them have ten. And on rare occasion, you'll find some church that knows 200 scriptures. I think that's pushing it. 
but they certainly don't live by every word of God. Well, they say the Old Testament's all done away. Don't need, don't need that. And most of the New Testament's done away because what did Christ say? If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And they said, which ones? He started naming the Ten Commandments. That's what he did. And the kids said, well, I've kept these all my life. Oh, you have? Okay, well, why don't you sell everything you have and give it to the poor? Oh, well, wait a minute now. It, wouldn't that be loving his neighbor as much as himself? That's the last six commandments right there. He just got him, just boom, just like that. But that, I was in the Methodist church up until maybe age eight or so, and uh, they didn't teach me to keep the commandments there. No, they were done away with. And then when we began to study Worldwide Church of God, literature, my parents went to the Methodist preacher, Horace Brooks was his name, I even remember it, little bald-headed fellow, and said, uh, well, we're not supposed to eat pigs and crabs and shrimps and lobster. Oh, he says, you've got to quit reading that Old Testament because it says back here that Peter cleansed all things, or Christ cleansed all things and made them able to be eaten. And that was, as I recall, the last visit we made to the Methodist Church. So he wasn't going to follow the Scriptures. And he didn't understand the vision of Peter. I'm to call no man common or unclean. All can be called toward the kingdom of God. Didn't have to do with animals at all. And he never did rise, kill, and eat either, did he? All right, Herbert Armstrong came out right away. We've got to keep the commandments. The Sabbath is one of them. How many people are ready to believe that out of all these Sunday churches? Very few. And you go to the preacher and you ask him, well, why do you keep Sunday? Well, son, you just need to understand we know. There's no answer. But I got that from a lot of preachers, you know. Well, that was kind of done away with or... Jesus was raised on Sunday and that changed it, or whatever. They got some lame excuse, but they don't quote you the Scripture. So, Hezekiah kept the commandments, and Herbert Armstrong preached that very strongly throughout his ministry. You got to keep the commandments. And the Eternal was with him, and he prospered wherever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. Now, if I look back and I see that Herbert Armstrong was faithful to God and clave to him and preached the commandments, and everything he did began to prosper, didn't it? Until it grew from a mustard seed to a great tree that covered the earth. We read yesterday that it was not really a tree of stature like a, a cedar, but even though it grew and put forth branches, it was more like a vine because it turned its roots to him and didn't root in God enough. And therefore, it has been blown apart. But still in all, uh, it did prosper. I mean, the, the three campuses were some of the most beautiful places on earth. I went to all three of them at one time or another. 
in uh, Texas and England as well. All right, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. I think we're going to see in the story that uh, 1979, the Assyrian came against the church, the state of California. Who can stand before the state of California? I don't think Donald Trump will be able to even. But the state of California came in and seized the church, took it over, took over the buildings, everything, and started going through the books, trying to find fraud and misuse and so on and so forth. Went on for quite some while. Herbert Armstrong didn't knuckle under to it. He moved to Tucson, Arizona, and said, send your tithes and your offerings here, and we'll conduct it from here, because the state of California has taken over the campus. And they did, lock, stock, and barrel. And there was a huge fight that went on there. That was a war. And he didn't knuckle under to the Assyrian at all. We'll see a little more in detail as we go on. Uh, that's the world coming against that which God had established. And it didn't work. He smote the Philistines, even to Gaza and the borders thereof, from the lower uh, tower of the watchman to the fence city. Uh, I don't want to read this whole thing, uh, but we'll pick up the highlights. Uh, during his fourth year in verse 9, uh, the king of Assyria came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. Samaria was taken into verse 10. Now, he was not the king of, Ju of Samaria. He was the king of Judah. So the northern tribes went into the captivity of the Assyrian, but the Jews were not taken down at that time, is what he's saying. Why? Verse 11 says, The king of Assyria did carry away Israel into Assyria, took them captive. Verse 12, Because they obeyed not the voice of the Eternal their God, but transgressed his covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of the Eternal, commanded, and would not hear them, nor do them. So there's a contrast here between Hezekiah, king of Judah, who did keep God's commandments, and the northern tribes, who did not, and God sent them into captivity. Verse 13, uh, in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. So he did begin to captivate Judah. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended. Return from me. That which you put on me will I bear. The king of Assyria appointed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Eternal and in the treasures of the king's house. Now, this was not a good thing. <coughs> and we'll read about it some more later and what happened as a result of all this. So, even though he stood against the king of Assyria... And he does rebel later. Uh, here for a while he was conciliatory. And he gave the things, the treasures of God to the Assyrian. 
Verse 16, At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Eternal, and from the pillars which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid, and gave it to the king of Assyria. The bribe didn't work, though. Uh, let's see, we'll, we'll go on down. Uh, the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh to them and said, Speak to Hezekiah and tell him if he doesn't do everything we want him to do, uh, he will be destroyed. In verse 26, these people had come uh, to talk to <coughs> the Jews. And Hezekiah wasn't out there, but uh, the one that was said, middle of verse 26, Speak, I pray you, to your servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. And talk not with us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. So there was a negotiation going here, and it embarrassed Hezekiah's lieutenants, and they didn't want the common people to know what was going on. So it said, speak to us in Syria, not in Jewish language. We, we don't want that, uh, because all these people will know that Hezekiah is compromising, and this could be bad. Now, I saw Herbert Armstrong doing some of this. He was teaching against eating clean and unclean meats. He <coughs> had treasures in the uh, auditorium, the buildings. A lot of money had been spent to build some really fine buildings. And he took gifts to the various kings of the earth. They didn't request him to come to them to preach the gospel. We found out later that Stanley Rader and, uh, oh, what was the little Chinese guy's name? Or was he Chinese or Jap Japanese? Japanese, maybe he was. Remember his name? Oh, okay. uh, it might come to me in a minute. Hashioka or something. I don't, I don't remember. Huh? No, Bakioki was an Italian. Uh, it, it was an Asian name. It, it doesn't really matter. But he was going around to these different governments and offering them presents if they would receive Herbert Armstrong uh, and give him an audience. And he could tell them about there's a way of give and a way of get and make some nice platitudes and not tell them you're breaking the law of God and you're going to be condemned for it. But he was soft-soaping them. And he would take them gifts of Waterford crystal, which is very expensive, and various things of that nature to compromise or to try to get an audience. Now, I think his motive was, in some respects, okay. He wanted them to hear about God. But when he did get there, he gave them pablum and not anything strong. Otherwise, it had kicked him out right away. And there were times that they would, when he'd go to some of those Asian countries, they would serve stuff that you and I can't even pronounce. Uh, unclean stuff. And I've been told by, it wasn't there, but I've been told by some who were there that yes, he went ahead and ate those things uh, not to give offense. Uh, he compromised. So, even though he taught strongly the truth, 
there were some compromises as in the things that he did, and that wasn't good. I didn't like it when I heard it way back then. I still don't like it. We can't go there. Can't do that. We are to appear to them as Christ would. I cannot imagine Christ sitting there eating crawdads because the Louisianans said that was good for, to do and they'd listen to him if he'd eat their crawdads. Don't think that would happen. Never happened. We're to be like him. We're not to compromise on the things that God says. <clears throat> so he compromised in here in a pretty big way. I mean, you start stripping the gold off the doors of the king of the temple of God, it's a pretty serious offense. And yet, God didn't turn away from Hezekiah. I think that's interesting. He was very patient and waited and so on. And then, uh, the king of Assyria had sent Rabshakeh to try to get Hezekiah to do everything the king wanted, otherwise he would go ahead and take him captive anyway. And down verse 31, uh, the king's envoy said, Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat you every man of his own vine, and every one his fig tree, and drink you every one the waters of his cistern, and I'll take you away to a land like your own land, a land full of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyard and olive oil and so on, that you may live and not die. So do everything I say, and I'll give you good things, and I won't kill you. Don't do what I say, and I'll kill you. That, that was the deal he offered. But the people who were hearing this held their peace, verse 36, and answered not a word, for the king's commandment was, saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joash the son of Asaph the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. When you heard something terrible in those days, you ripped your clothes apart and dumped ashes over your head sackcloth and ashes. That was your way of expressing grief or trouble. And it came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Eternal. Now, Hezekiah had compromised before. Had given the king all these gifts and so on, as had been demanded of him. You know what happens with blackmail? You give in to it, and then they come back with even bigger demands. That's the way it works. So Hezekiah made a mistake in giving in to the blackmail. And then when the king of Assyria had all these gifts, he comes back and says, Okay, now give me everything or die. Oh, Hezekiah began to get a little message here. So he rent his clothes. And he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. So at least he knew what to do. Isaiah was a prophet of God, and Hezekiah knew it. 
So he was, he, at least he looked for some sound advice when he found himself in trouble. I've recounted to you, did I yesterday? I'm not sure. I may have in part, but in 1981, uh, Herbert Armstrong, I was in a conference with him, with my wife. He and I and Herbert Armstrong, or she and I and Herbert Armstrong and Joe DeCotts were the only ones in the room. And Mr. Armstrong, I, I told you some of this, was saying who can't do the job, who can't do it. And then he said Joe can't do it. I told you that. But during that time, it came to my mind to say that in Second Thessalonians 2 there, where it says that the man of sin will stand in the temple of God, saying that he's in the place of God, I said, Mr. Armstrong, that's not the Pope. That's not somebody standing in the Jewish temple. That's someone standing in the church, the temple of God. And it hit him like a bolt of lightning. And he says, maybe that's Stan Raider. I mean, just like that, because Stan was betraying him. But Stan wasn't in the room. And I don't think what I said and Mr. Armstrong's reaction was necessarily a warning to Mr. Armstrong. I think it was a warning to Joe DeCotch who heard it. Don't you stand in the temple of God as if you're God. Well, what did Joe do once he got in charge? Whatever I bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever I loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I just loose the Ten Commandments. I just loose... I mean, uh, tithing. I just loose this, and uh, all I'm binding on you is love Jesus, basically, when he became that. So here Hezekiah was warned. He came to Isaiah, and they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. We read that in the book of Isaiah, speaking of the end-time church as well. But how we're supposed to produce Christ in our lives, and we have trouble bringing Him forth. (laughs) Uh, we, We don't look enough like Him. We're having trouble with this project. It may be that the Eternal, your God, will uh, hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent, to reproach the living God. And Hezekiah, you might be destroyed. You may go into captivity. Mr. Armstrong was worried about whether Stan Rader and later Joe DeCotch would destroy the work. And he wanted to live to be sure that that would not happen. So here Hezekiah is faced with destroying Judah, the work of God, through Israel. And Judah was part of Israel. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, verse 6. Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Eternal, Be not afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Syria have blasphemed me. Now, God had built Worldwide Church of God through Herbert Armstrong and later through others. And the state of California came against it. And the state has a lot of power, had a lot of money, had a lot of high-priced attorneys. 
And God said, no, I've established that church. The state of California is not going to destroy it. And it didn't. Finally, the state of California was sent packing. They withdrew, turned it back over to the church. See any parallel here? God says, Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and shall return to his own land and fall by the sword in his own land. His sons ultimately killed him. So Rakshaka returned to the king and so on. And this went on. Uh, Rabshakeh made another threat. What did did Hezekiah do? Verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Eternal and spread it before the Eternal. And Hezekiah prayed before the Eternal and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwell between the cherubims, you are God. Even you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made the heaven and earth. Now here is an action of a righteous man. He'd made a mistake, he'd given in to threats, and then he found his courage. He found his Christianity, if you will, or his worship of God. It wasn't Christianity then. First were called Christians at Antioch, I think it was. Lord, bow down your ear and hear, open. Lord, open your eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which have sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, eternal, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations in their lands. The thing you've been being told by these envoys from the king of Assyria were true. He had threatened and says, well, we've, dis- we've destroyed this country and that country and the other country. We're going to do the same thing to you. As the guy says, you know, that was the truth, God. They have done this. Now what? They've cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O eternal our God, I beseech you, save us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the eternal God, even you only. And I think in a small way, when the state of California was defeated and headed back to Sacramento with their tail between their legs, uh, the world that then knew Worldwide Church of God kind of got the message that, hey, there's something going on here that's bigger than the state of California. That message was clear whether people saw it or not. And Herbert Armstrong later told us, God saved us from the state. Verse 19, Now therefore, eternal our God, I beseech you, save you us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know your God. Then Isaiah the son of Amoz sent to Hezekiah, saying, Here's God's answer. That which you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, I have heard. This is the word that the Eternal has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you exalted your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. Ruh-roh. <laughs> this, this is a bad thing you did, Sennacherib. 
By your messengers you have reproached the Eternal, and have said, With the multitude of my chariots I am come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and will cut down the tall cedar trees, and the choice fir trees thereof, and I will enter into the lodgings of his borders, and in the forest of his Carmel. And then he went on bragging and bragging some more. We won't read all that, same stuff, basically. And then God gave a sign to Israel, or to Judah. You shall eat this year such things as grow of themselves, and in the second year that which springs of the same. And in the third year sow you and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruits thereof. Now this is an introduction. Notice this three-year period here. I think we'll see that again. We've been talking about it a little bit recently. And here we find it in this story. But is it referring to Herbert Armstrong's time? Let's read on. And the remnant that is escaped out of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. So not all of Judah, but a remnant. And we'll see that out of Worldwide Church of God, a 10% remnant will take root downward and bear fruit upward. And this three-year period here, I think we'll see is a very, very important period of time. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Eternal of hosts, shall do this. We're told throughout the Psalms and other places through the prophecies that Zion is the place that God will send us for refuge. And it isn't a little cemetery off the wall of the Arab city of Jerusalem in the Middle East. It's the Zion of God with the towers, the joy of all the land, and so on from the Psalms. You can go just a little ways here, about an hour, and you can see this place. Therefore thus says the Eternal concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. For I will defend this city, verse 34, to save it for my own sake and my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Eternal went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 men. And when they arose in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So the king of Assyria went home, and there his sons killed him with the sword. Now does he not tell us that if we will, God tell us, if we'll serve him, he will protect us. He will be about us, and a wall of fire around us, we'll read a little later on. Didn't he protect even worldwide from let's say the Assyrian. Sacramento's way north of Las, Vegas, Los Angeles and Pasadena, and they came down from there and attacked, but were repelled. Now in those days, verse 20, or chapter 20, was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Eternal, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. That was the message that God sent to Hezekiah. Now, had Hezekiah made some mistakes? Yes, he had. He had given in to blackmail. And then he finally stiffened and turned to God. 
But there was a penalty enacted there. And when he got this boil, we'll see later that it was a boil that was life-threatening and going to kill him. But he didn't know that until Isaiah came and said, you're going to die. Oh, that went over real well. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Eternal, saying, I beseech you, O Eternal, remember now how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in your sight. And Hezekiah whipped sore. We're going to read another account of some of the really good things that Hezekiah had done. So he wept seriously, sorely, uh, with great emotion, in other words. And it came to pass, before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Eternal came to him, saying, Go back, tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus says the Eternal, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up into the house of the Eternal, and I will add unto your days fifteen years, and will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs, and they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Now, prevailing prayer, given in deep sincerity, can sometimes change the mind of God. Good lesson for us. We can go prevailingly to God. If He's made a decision, sometimes He'll change it. How can we have that kind of a sway with God? What did Hezekiah remind God of. He reminded him of all the time that he had obeyed him and had served him and done those things which were good and right. It didn't say here that he went back and says, well, I did kind of give in to the blackmail. (laughs) He didn't want to remind God of that at that point, even though God was quite aware of it. He hadn't forgotten it. But because he did come in prevailing prayer and appeal to God, he was healed. In other words, God forgave. What is healing? Forgiveness of sin. That's what it is. So God forgave that sin of Hezekiah and healed him. And the uh, sundial went back ten degrees as proof that God was going to heal him. God gives signs sometimes to show us what he has done or will do. And he tells us in Isaiah, he's giving us a sign. Uh, And he gives us a couple of things there as signs that we're supposed to understand and act upon. Now, what about Herbert Armstrong? In 1977, I mentioned yesterday, he had a heart attack. He was, for all appearances, dead on the spot, and with anointing and CPR, after a minute and a half, he began breathing again, and sometime after that, as I said, he asked for another 10 years of life, not 15 as Hezekiah was given, but he asked for 10 years, and he recovered from the heart attack, and he had almost nine years 
of active duty after that. So God intervened and gave him some extra time to finish the job that he had been given to do. Now, the work was preserved during that time. It was after his death in 86 that it began to really come unraveled. There had been problems, yes, but it began to really be unraveled in 1987 and 8 and 9 and on through there. So God gave him that sign. And verse 12, at that time, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened to them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Now this was a mistake. If a king of a foreign country or your next door burglar comes to your house, are you going to show him everything you got? Here's my jewelry, here's my TV, and here's my recorder, and uh, I, I have uh, 50 bucks over there in that wallet, and you're going to show him everything you got. Makes it real easy for him when he comes into your place, doesn't it? Kind of a mistake to show something, somebody everything you got. Then came Isaiah the prophet to King Hezekiah and said to him, What said these men? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah says, They all come from a far country, even Babylon. There's somebody you can trust. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Sounds kind of proud, doesn't he? Oh, man, I showed them everything, Isaiah. They got to see it all. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Eternal. Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and that which your fathers have laid up in store to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. And of your sons that shall issue from you, which you shall beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which you have spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? <laughs> my sons are going to go get castrated in Babylon, but at least there will be peace till I'm gone. A little bit self-centered, I'd say. But because he showed all those treasures, he said that I'll be taken away. Now, what did Herbert Armstrong do? He went to the kings and the leaders of the world, and he showed them everything that he had. And then he started a concert series in the house that had been dedicated to God of worldly music and so on. And they would come in with their orchestras and their bands and their singers and so on and perform worldly music in a house set aside for God. Now, they saw everything that the church had. Saw the beautiful campuses, everything. All that was taken away. 
Big Sandy is gone. Brickett Wood in England is gone. The campus in, in Pasadena, everything's gone. Exact same parallel as we see here. Now there's more detail added. Let's see what time it is. What time goes by in a hurry? You're having fun. I'm having fun. Um, I want to go next to Second uh, Chronicles 29. We'll wrap this up here in a little bit. We don't have to get it all today. <clears throat> But let's get at least a, a start here. Again, it says, Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 and so on. Verse 2, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Eternal, according to all that David his father had done. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Eternal and repaired them. Now later on, he'd be taking the gold off when the bride came, but he started out by repairing the things, fixing what was wrong. This was a, a good thing in his life. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together in the east street and said to them, Hear me, you Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the eternal God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. So he started a cleanup job as soon as he became king. Now, what did Herbert Armstrong do? He started cleaning up false doctrine just as soon as he learned it. As soon as God gave those things to him, he began to teach the truth and get people to start keeping Saturday instead of Sunday and the feasts instead of Christmas, and on and on it went. He's cleaning the filthiness out of churchianity, if you will. Those who were in churchianity were being told, come out of her, that you be not partakers of her sins, and do what's right. So that's what Hezekiah was doing. <clears throat> uh, but their fathers had not done that. Verse 6, Our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Eternal, and have forsaken him and turned their faces away, they shut up the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. They'd quit obeying God. Wherefore, the wrath of the Eternal was found upon Judah and Jerusalem and yet delivered them to trouble, to astonishment and to hissing, as you see with your eyes. For lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Now we find ourselves in this same position. Worldwide came apart. We were spewed out and scattered across all the world for not being attentive to and obeying God in the way that he wanted to be obeyed and served and loved. So we find ourselves in this same condition. Now what did Hezekiah do when he found himself in that position? I want to turn my heart to make a covenant with God, an agreement with God, that I will obey you and I want your anger to turn away. 
And he tells us, if we will turn to him with our whole heart in Jeremiah, that he will turn his face back to us and bless us. So we are the ones who have been scattered. We are the ones who have to give the right answer here in the spirit of Hezekiah. Weren't we disciples of Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God? Therefore, if we find ourselves in the same situation that the church or that Hezekiah was in, should not we, those who were following him, do what Hezekiah did here and turn to God? Because the other prophecies tell us that's the thing to do. So they rose, and uh, verse 15, middle, they began to cleanse the house of the eternal. And they went to the inner part of the house to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple. So they were in there looking for all the unclean things they could find. Are we supposed to be trying to find and sort out and get rid of whatever sin we find? Isn't that what Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread are all about? Find the sin, get it out, put it out. Sounds like the church. Uh, they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify it. That's interesting, I think, in verse 17. God says He will come and bring us the former and latter rains and blessings in the first month. And that's beginning New Year's Eve revolution. I mean, uh, resolutions here, I guess. We've got to get the temple cleansed. That's, that's our resolution for this year. And they had it pretty well dunged out by the 16th day of the first month. And uh, verse 19, Moreover, all the vessels which King Ahaz in his reign did cast away in his transgression, have we prepared and sanctified, and behold, they are before the altar of the eternal. So they're getting things back in place. Order was restored. So Hezekiah rose early and went up to the house of the eternal, and they brought seven bullocks, and they did a sin offering. Uh... They went through that, and then in verse 25, He set the Levites in the house of the Eternal with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, and of Gad the king seer, and Nathan the prophet. For so was the commandment of the Eternal by his prophets. So, music became a very, very important part of the temple worship in the days of Hezekiah, just as they had been in the past. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Um, they did the burnt offerings. They played the trumpets. Verse 28, And all the congregation worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. And all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. I think it's interesting there that uh, Hezekiah caused that to be done, and music became a very important part of the worship of God there at that place. Now, under Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God, music was emphasized greatly. Uh, we had the Ambassador Chorale that sang uh, mostly stuff about God, some secular stuff at certain times. But he even commissioned his brother, uh, Dwight, to set the Psalms to music. We're singing those to this day. But he caused that to be done. Let's see, there's 
the song of the Lord in verse 27 with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David king of Israel where does it say here I read it this morning somewhere it says that they set the words of David to music the Psalms and that's what Herbert Armstrong caused to be done in the end time church to set the Psalms to music and that's why we sing these psalms, the words of David, set to music. So he did the same thing. Where's that? Verse 30. Okay. Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Eternal with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. So, with the words of David. There you have it. The psalms. Then. We're going to sing one more here before this service is over. Uh, because that was something that was instituted by a later type, I think, of Hezekiah. You see that you see similarities all the way through here. It's amazing. But this, uh, that's all the time really we have. So let's stop right there. I think that's a good note to stop on. That, that music was brought back into life and into religious life. And music is a very emotional thing. Uh, and these hymns that we sing, there's an incredible message because of the words of God through David. So, don't just mumble along, but pay attention to these words because they're the words of God.